Ruth chapter 1. We'll be looking at some lessons from Ruth. And what's particularly interesting to me about this book and books like uh, Esther and even when you, you see several chapters from the book of Judges is that it's just an accounting of just seemingly normal people. Uh, living their lives, making good choices, making bad choices. We don't see any miracles from God. We don't see uh, prophets in action. We don't see, you know, uh, godly kings, you know, like David or, or Solomon in action. That these are just, uh, it's just some normal people uh, d- doing the right things in, in many cases. And uh, moving on, uh, in, in verse 1 of Ruth chapter 1, it says, Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And so we see pretty quick, quickly the time period that this, uh, that this book was, uh, these things occurred, that it was in the days when the judges ruled. And of course, if you're familiar with the book of Judges, you'll know that uh, this was a, it was a, at least in Israel's history, that it was pretty much a pattern of cycles of faithfulness and unfaithfulness, that, um, that the uh, Israel would uh, pretty much forsake God, that they would uh, serve other gods, and then they would become oppressed, and uh, a judge would rise up, and that God would, and God would deliver them through the judge. And so that, you know, at least that time period had, was a particular interest to me because I want to know, like, well, what time did this happen? Was this a high point in Israel's history? Was it a low point? And I got to look, and, and really what we can see is that uh, we, we can get a picture of the time period looking at the genealogy of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 1 and verse 5, it says, Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab, Boaz begot Obed by Ruth, and Obed begot Jesse. Now, I just, uh, just, you know, got that verse out of the context there. And, but if you look at this genealogy of Matthew, is that many times it just lists the fathers. And it's only the, the only mothers of, I would say, particular interest uh, that Matthew lists those mothers. For example, we see Ruth. And, of course, if you know the story of Ruth, this is a uh, very interesting story given that she was a Moabite woman, which we'll get into later. If you read a verse up, I believe it was in verse 4, it talks about uh, Judah begot Perez and, and another one by Tamar. And, of course, if you remember that whole story, that was an a, entirely bad situation, being that uh, Judah did really Tamar wrong, but Tamar was his daughter-in-law, and they end up having a, a child together. And it's just a, you know really a, a bad situation, but we see God making good of it. But I wanted to point out that the, you know, these women are particularly interesting. We see Boaz, Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. And I make the point, there's probably several Rahabs that have, that have lived, but given the context and how Matthew, uh, you know, brings out this genealogy, it seems very apparent to me that he's talking about Rahab the harlot. And uh, so if you remember the whole story that, that uh, Rahab hides the spies, this was as the beginning of when Israel was going into the promised land. So that was that first generation. Think about Joshua, that first generation. And Salmon, it says, apparently he marries Rahab uh, the harlot. And so we get the time period and we see Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. And the reason I bring this, this uh, point up is that Boaz was part of the second generation. 
of Israelites that were in the land. And if you know the book of Judges, you read in Judges chapter 2, in verse 10, that this second generation, that it says, when all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after, rose after them who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. So if we kind of piece this together, we kind of get a, that this was the time period in which this whole story was was uh, was being done during this time in which that that generally Israel did not know the Lord nor the work which He had done for them, and it's apparent as we read throughout the book that Boaz had some regard for the Lord and his and His law. We see him referencing Lord, greeting others in in chapter two. We see uh, you know. It, at least in Boaz's recognition of Ruth's character, that uh, he he sees what's going on. We see him, we see him abiding by the law of gleaning. That he keeps some of his crops in the field so that the poor can glean from them. And uh, we see him having knowledge of that law and also the law of redemption, in which he is going to redeem uh, Naomi's uh, land so that uh, they can continue to have that land in their family. Now, I also, what's, what's interesting here is you see all these references to God by the individuals here. We see when Naomi and Elimelech, they go over to Moab, that Ruth knows of God. So there, there was at least some reference uh, towards God there. But I want to also you know, want to make the point that you know, within all of this, that not knowing the Lord does not mean to not know of God. This is not meaning, well, they just forgot about God. Because we see a lot of people knew about God in Israel here in this story. And even throughout the time, we see where it's not, it's not just a, that they just forget about God and serve soul of these other gods, that they were mixing in this worship of the Lord with, with this worship of other gods as well. We see in Judges chapter 2 and verse 11 and 12, it says, Then the children of Israel did evil on the side of the Lord and served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. So we see that they didn't know the Lord. They served these Baals. And in Judges chapter 2 and verse 22, we see where God allows some of these people that Joshua didn't drive out to remain in the land. And the reason he did this, it says, so that through them I may test Israel whether they will keep the ways of the Lord to walk in them as their fathers kept them or not. So this is, you know, tying in this concept of knowing the Lord that is tied in with the fact of keeping the ways of the Lord. And them not knowing the Lord meant that they didn't keep those ways. And if they, you know, and that would mean putting away uh, these false gods. So important lesson for us that when we talk about knowing the Lord, you think about what John talks about those that are of God or or of Christ, those that keep his commandments, those that, you know, that, that truly love him and serve him faithfully. Second uh, John, those that, uh, you know, don't abide in the doctrine of Christ, they don't have uh, God. So we can kind of understand what this idea of knowing the Lord means. It is not just, well, I have some mental knowledge of this God, and, uh, and I believe that he exists. There more, there's more to that. Now, and, 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 and thinking about this, when we think about Boaz's situation, we think about uh, him this regard for the Lord that he has. And, and we see this character of, of Boaz. We don't see any negative descriptions of him in this book. And we think about him being able to serve God, even during the midst of this terrible time in Israel's history of not knowing, God, generally not knowing God. And we think about Revelation chapter 3, 
you know, uh, the Church of Sardis. Christ described the Church of Sardis they having a name that they are alive, but they are dead. So you think about this, and it's like, I don't want to, you know, I probably wouldn't want to be a part of that congregation. You know, it's like that they, that they, that God, that Christ describes them in this way. But notice in verse 4, it says, You have a few names, even as Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. That even in the midst of this terrible situation, there is again few people who are still doing right, even when everybody else is doing wrong. And you can kind of imagine the, the tension that might be felt there and the struggle and the hardships that may be faced by these people who are, who are dedicated to serving God, and yet they're still able to do this. Another uh, well-known passage is 1 Kings chapter 19. This is right after Elijah's uh, you know, great discouragement. And it says, Yet I have reserved 7,000 Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So, you know, again, even at this generation, we, we understand that this is a general description of Israel at this time, but it doesn't mean that, that, that nobody served God, that there were still some there. And there's always still those that are faithful, even if that, uh, even if that uh, number is very small. Even in, in this situation with Elijah, we think about Jezebel and, you know, her disdain uh, for God and, and his servants, that there were still some that had not uh, bowed down to Baal. There were still 7,000 there that were willing to uh, really sacrifice all to serve God. Now, going on with the story, we read in, in Ruth chapter 1 that uh, Elimelech and Naomi, they go to Moab because of a famine in the land. And, you know, given the context, you kind of sit here and wonder, like, well, wonder why there was a famine in the land. But anyways, they go to Moab with their sons, Malon and Chilion, and we see that they marry Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. And what's particularly interesting about this is in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 and 4, and other passages that we look look at, that this was something that was forbidden by God's law, that they were not supposed to go out and marry these foreign women. And Deuteronomy 7, verse 1 says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess, and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show, show mercy to them, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods, so the angel anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. So here we see God not wanting... Uh, Israelites to intermarry with the, all of these foreign nations. And the reason for this is it says, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And so you can't, they're, they're serving these other gods. And so if you go out and you've, you fool with these people, you marry, marry these people, they're going to turn you away from, from serving me. And, of course, we see here that the Moabites aren't explicitly mentioned. Of course, we see the principle here, and I would say even the principle here is, is reason enough not to be going out and marrying Moabite women. But also in Ezra chapter, chapter 9, verses 1, 2, and 4, that we see a specific example in which Israel, of course, this is after the captivity, they had returned to land, 
one of the, you know one of the first things that they do is they go and marry uh, foreign women. And it says, when the, these things were done, the leaders came to me saying, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians and Amorites, for they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed is mixed with the peoples of those lands. Indeed, the hands of the leaders and rulers have been foremost in this trespass. So we see that they take these Moabite women, and we see in verse 2 that they have that they have trespassed, and in verse 4 it says, And everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel assembled to me because of the transgression of those who have been carried away captive, and I said astonished until the evening sacrifice. So they weren't supposed to be doing this. They weren't supposed to be separating themselves. And the reason is, is that they would be seduced to follow these other gods. We see that in Solomon's case, marrying his wife, that they, that they seduced him to, to follow these false gods, even when we see him so, being so faithful in his younger years. And we see that Israel has had a bad history of Moabite women. This was several years before, and, and seemingly you would think that this would probably be that those in Israel during the time of Ruth were probably probably know a little bit about this story. In Numbers chapter 25, verse 1, it says, Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. So we see that, you know, later in Deuteronomy, we see that uh, don't, don't, fool, don't, don't marry these women because they're going to seduce you to serve other gods. And we see this, this happening beforehand uh, with, you know, its it, situation uh, at Acacia Grove, that they, were, that they would commit harlotry with the women, but then they were invited, that they were invited to uh, partake in these sacrifices of their gods. And uh, we see the Lord's anger was aroused. We see later on that there was some very uh, quick and decisive action by Phineas that was able to, you know, uh, uh, stop this plague. But they did exactly what God uh, that God warned them of the uh, God warned them of if they were going to attach themselves to the foreign women. So going back to the situation, of Ruth, that it's you know there that you know, Limelech and, and Malon and Chilion they're doing something they ought not to be doing. And, uh, of course, we, we'll, we'll see the rest of the story and how that turns out. So, at least in this context, this is very interesting. And, and, and looking at it, if, if all we had was the first part of, of Chapter 1, you would probably be thinking this probably didn't turn out too good. But uh, we'll read later on of actually that there is good that comes, up, comes out of it. Now, another, another interesting note. Deuteronomy Chapter 23, dealing with, the, with these Moabites, that they could not entered the assembly of, of the Lord. Now, obviously that means that it does not mean that they can't become a proselyte, but there were going to be, there were, there were some things that they could not participate in uh, with Israel. We see that in verse 3, an Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Because they did not meet you with bread and water, on the road when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. Now, you know, you think about this for a minute, and we'll look at a little later on, of Ruth uh, 
this dedication that Ruth has to her mother-in-law, Naomi, that she's willing to go to this foreign land, go to Israel, and be with her, to serve her and to serve God. And recognize that this is what she's putting herself into, that she's going to be excluded from some things. She's going to have to give up you know, some things of, of her culture, to give up the only thing that she's known. Uh, you know, and, 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 and give up this, uh, you know, at least for the time being, this, uh, you know, this ability to go out and find, find a husband in Moab. But yet she puts all that away to go to Israel with her mother-in-law and to serve her mother, mother-in-law as well and to take care of her. And, you know, moving along, at least, you know, and going along with this idea that uh, we see that there are advantages of being a Jew. We see that in Romans chapter 9, that, there were, that, that they were a chosen nation, that they, had, that they had things that no other nation had. And yet, you know, it makes clear that this does not mean that God didn't want these non-Jews from serving him. We see in Romans chapter 1 that there were invisible attributes that, that anybody could see and that they could know and serve God. And we see in Acts chapter 10, the situation with Courtney that's still serving God. And so this does not exclude them from serving God in any way. But yet there were uh, benefits of, of being a, an Israelite and that there were certain works that they could partake in that others uh, could not. Now, recognize that under the law of Christ that we are all equal. Uh, if you were watching on Facebook on Thursday, we had a lesson on partiality and that there's this standard that's given for all in which if you do righteous, if you work righteousness, God's going to accept you. But if you commit sin, God's going to hold you accountable for that. There's going to be, there's no money, there's no, you know, there's no, uh, you know, uh, jobs, you know, any, any uh, you think about any uh, connections that you may have in this life, there, there's not, it's not going to work with God. And uh, any, of those, any of those benefits and privileges don't work out. You're all going to be held accountable and all have the same standard in which you're going to be judged. And in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. You're all equal. You all have the same footing with Christ. Now, with that being said, I think that we have to understand that this does not mean that all Christians have the same works given uh, to them. We think about Ephesians 4, think about the, the, the body and these different offices and these different members, that there's going to be different works for these members. The eye doesn't have the same function as the ear. You know, the arm doesn't have the same function as the leg. Saying, there's different works, and uh, some people, are they're just excluded from them. For example, in Titus chapter 1 and verse 6, uh, Talk about the qualifications of an elder. It says, If a man is blameless to husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. So we see this idea of a husband of one wife, and so it's limited to men. Uh, kind of hard for a woman to be a husband. That uh, this was this, was this, this uh, command given by a God, that this is who was going to be the elders, but also having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. So... What you know, those that have unfaithful children or, or don't have children, there's there's certain qualifications that they don't meet, and so they cannot be an elder. We also see in First Timothy chapter two and verse twelve says, "I do not permit a woman uh, to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence." So, men can do things that in, in, in situations that women can't do. 
in the, in the situation of having authority over man, but they are to be in silence. So recognize that we're all equal, but yet there's different works for us. And just because we're excluded from one work does not mean that God, you know, God doesn't care about us or God is, uh, you know, God is, you know, being kind of mean or prejudiced against me. Uh, we're all equal. God still values all of us, but we all have different works to do. And also I want to point out Ruth's humility. Uh, she was willing to go to a foreign land and serve her mother-in-law. We've already kind of briefly talked about this, but in verse 16 of chapter 1, it says, Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you, for wherever you go I will go, and wherever you lodge I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. And notice Ruth's humility here. That it, nothing about this was about, nothing about her, you know. It's not about, well, you know, I'll only go if there's some benefit for me or if I, you know, if, if I'll get a good job or if I make a bunch of money or whatever. This was nothing, or you'll find me a good husband. This was, this was not in her mind, that uh, she was willing to do whatever it took to go with her, even to the extent this is your people shall be my people, so I'm no longer going to, you know, attach myself to these Moabites. And it says, and you're God, my God, so I'm going to serve the God that you serve. And so we see the humility here. And I think there's a little bit of a parallel here with the, the Syrophoenician woman in Mark chapter 7. And this humility that she shows towards Christ. And in Mark chapter 7 verse 26 it says, The woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she kept asking him to cast a demon out of her daughter. But Jesus said to her, Let the children be filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. You know, in verse 27, how Christ responds to her, you, you're thinking about that. It would, be, it would be hard for me to, you know, uh, somebody call me a little dog. It's just like, I don't, and, and, you're, and, you're, and you know, you're putting me down like this. It'd be hard to have much of an interaction with that person anymore. And yet we see this humility that she shows, and you know she, her, you know she did not. Uh, her pride was not in this uh, situation. That she put aside her pride because she knew that he could cast out this demon. That he had, she had enough faith in him that, regardless of what he says, she knows that he could do this. And uh, you know, another great lesson for us is we, you know, do we put our pride? Do we put our pride, or, or, or we, or we, you know, let our pride be a, um, a you know, a stumbling block or a wall uh, for us from serving Christ? If there's some things that we just, oh, I'm not going to do that because you know I'm too good for this, or I'm not going to uh, maybe uh, you know deal with this individual or talk to this individual because I'm just better than them, and I don't want I don't want to be associated with them. Uh, that uh, you know we see this great humility. Uh, from Ruth and the Syrophoenician woman, and we always uh, need to recognize that uh, you know our pride can be a huge barrier for us from to effectively serve God, and that has no place in our lives if we're going to be Christians. That we are to serve others and not be thinking about uh, you know what uh, good that we can get uh, from these uh, other individuals. Also, uh, you know, again. I, we see Ruth's unwavering devotion. You know, we see the willingness to serve her mother-in-law, that she is, you know, willing to uh, forsake all these other things and really put her, at least in a physical aspect, it's a much more inconvenient situation for her. We look at First Timothy chapter 5, and verse 4. It's the context of, of individuals or the church 
uh, taking care of needy widows. In verse 4 it says, But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety, piety at home and repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. So we see even in the New Testament this this command that uh, you know if you are able to, that you are going to serve or, and repay your parents. You need to be taking care of them. Of course, in this society, it just seems like a more and more. It just and you know, and I've heard of and, and and seen situations where it just seems like those children they're only concerned about mama and daddy's money. They're not really concerned about their well-being, but they are definitely concerned about their inheritance and what good that they can get from that. And it just seems that you know, as society gets more and more selfish, that uh, we see this you know this command to repay their parents or, or take care of them as best as you can, just seems to be getting thrown to the to the wayside. And But we have to recognize that uh, this is what we ought to do, that we are to show piety at home, but also you repay their parents. So you take care of them as you, uh, as you can. Uh, we see in Luke chapter 9 and verses 59 through 62 that this, this idea of uh, not letting anything get in your way of serving Christ, uh, even if it's even if it's family, even if it's jobs, whatever it may be, you put those things aside to serve Christ. And I think this is kind of you know parallels to Ruth putting all these other things her past life aside in order to serve her mother-in-law. In verse fifty-nine, it says then he said to another, "Follow me." But he said, "Lord, let me first go and bury my father." He just said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. So we see here that we see that Christ tells another, follow me. He says, first let me go and bury my father. We see, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. So these, this uh, you know these different things that come up that will that will cause somebody to uh, you know maybe uh, not serve Christ at its fullest potential. And of course, what Christ is saying is he's not saying don't uh, don't ever bury uh, the dead or don't ever bury your kin folks. What he's doing here is it, in, in this particular instance is making the point that you can have nothing that stands between you and serving God. In verse sixty-two, no one having put his hand to the plow looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. And if you put your hand to this plow serving God and then you turn back, turn back to the principles of the world, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. We see that in Hebrews chapter 10 and verses 37 and 39 as well. It says, For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him, but we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. So he, he who is coming will come, will not tarry. If anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. This verse is interesting to me, at least when you think about this, this doctrine of once saved, always saved, that uh, you know, if anyone draws back, well, even if that, that means anyone, even if he's a Christian, but he says, my soul has no pleasure in him. So this person that draws back and, and, and God has no pleasure in this person, how is he fit for the kingdom of God? How will he make it to heaven? I think the writer's making it pretty clear that uh, we ought to always strive to completely follow him always. And if we will draw back, we're going to be drawn back to perdition. 
and we are called to believe, continue to believe, continue to uh, uh, continue to uh, serve God regardless of what's going on. That we believe to the saving of the soul, to the saving of the soul. That means that we are always uh, we're always busy about the, uh, the works of God. We're always uh, doing what He would want of us. Now, also. In Ruth chapter 2 and also in, in Ruth chapter 4, we see these, what I would call these practical applications of the law. In Ruth chapter 2, we see where uh, Ruth goes into Boaz's field and she gleans from Boaz's field. And so, you know, really what, what that is, is there are, they plant the field, but when they go and harvest, there's going to be some left over. Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 21 says, When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not glean it afterward. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. So there's going to be some left back, and so those that are the strangers, the fatherless, and the widows, which Ruth is a stranger and a widow, that they're able to pick from that, and they are able to survive. They're able to get uh, food uh, from what's left over from from the harvest. And uh, we see that, and so you think about, at least for Boaz, that he, he they put all this work in, uh, to plant this field, they tend to it, and yet they won't harvest all of it. There's some that they're not, they're not going to be able to harvest, and it's going to be for those, the strangers, follows the widow, for people that they may not even know. And, uh, you know, you think about Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, that, you know, there's the same principle that we work, but yet one of the reasons that we work is so that we have ability to give to some, those that are in need. And it's not we just hold back, and if I just have a little bit left over from, from doing whatever I wanted to do, that uh, if there's somebody in need, I may give them a few dollars. This is not, this is not uh, what Paul's saying here, that the part of the reason that we do labor is so for the express purpose of giving to those that are in need. It says, let him who stole still no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. So... Don't steal, but you work so that you can give to those that are in need. Also, we see the law of redemption in, in, in Ruth chapter 4. Verse 4 says, uh, And I thought to inform you, saying, Bite back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me, that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, for I am next after you. And he said, I will redeem it. So this was Boaz talking to the, a closer relative that, that, according to law, this close relative needed to redeem it. But if not, Boaz was going to redeem him. And, of course, this redemption is redeeming this land. It's buying back uh, this land of family members that were sold because they were poor for whatever reason. They could redeem it. But if they couldn't redeem it, the, the land would go back to the family regardless during the, uh, the year of Jubilee. Leviticus chapter 25, verse 25, here in the law, it says, If one of your brethren becomes poor and has sold some of his possession, and if his redeeming relative comes to redeem it, that he may redeem what his brother sold. And we see this is exactly what's happening in Ruth chapter 4. So we see the law, but we also in Ruth that I found interesting. Uh, I know many people think the book of Leviticus is kind kind of a tedious book, but we see these people here actually doing it. We see them applying this law that has been given to them. And, uh, you know, we think about this idea of redemption, redeeming the land, and, of course, I think about 
redemption through Christ here, that, that this idea of redemption is a ransom, that these, they're paying or buying back uh, these things, this land. And also we see this redemption that's through Christ and his blood, that, this is a, that his blood was a ransom for us, that uh, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So this is, you know, really the most uh, powerful redemption that we're seeing here, that God has redeemed us uh, through his son, that we're enemies. Sin has, uh, you know, we have been separated from God by our sins, and yet we have been redeemed uh, through his blood. Now, maybe run a little long, but another another thing that I, that I want to point out is Boaz's recognition of Ruth. We see that in Ruth chapter 2 that Boaz hears what uh, Ruth has, what has, has done in order to, uh, to serve Naomi. And we see, he, we see him recognizing her character in chapter 3 when he realizes that, uh, of course, she wants, to, wants him to marry her so they can perpetuate the name of the dead. And, uh, you know, really what was supposed to be happening uh, according to the law and we see where he recognizes her character and that she wasn't going to run for these younger men. And uh, she was going to uh, try to do the right thing here. And in Proverbs chapter 31, verses 11 through 15, it says, The heart of her husband safely trusts her, so he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and willingly works with her hands. She is like the merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. She also rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and a portion for her, her maidservants. So this godly woman, we see here that uh, she's busy. She's, she's, of course, she does him good. The heart of her husband trusts her, but notice what she's doing. She's working, working with her hands. Uh, she brings food from afar. She rises while it is yet night. So she's, she's busy. And, uh, of course, we see with Ruth that she's also as well. She's busy. Uh, she's not this lazy individual. And in verse 30, we see charm is deceitful and beauty is passing. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. And so this is like if, if, if this is, you know, pretty much like an exact description of, of Ruth here, that uh, she fears the Lord. She's, she's, she's dedicated herself to serving God. She's busy. She wants to do what's right. And, uh, you know, you, you think about Boaz's character and what we have seen from him so far, so far that uh, he obviously would recognize uh, these qualities in her. And he would know that she would make a good wife to him. So for us, those that are uh, looking for or married somebody or looking for somebody to marry, some good verses for us to look at. Is this, is this other person? Is this what they are? Uh, is this is, 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 is these the qualities of that person that you're interested in? So a great uh, example for us. Also, one last point is that, uh, you know, one of the things, I think one of the, one of the main lessons that we see in the book of Ruth, uh, we see in Esther as well, and we see in other examples that this is God's providence in play, and that these are, these are people just going about their lives, making these choices, uh, and God makes good come out of it. Ruth chapter 4 and verse 14, at the end of the story, uh, which uh, Boaz is going to redeem, uh, the, the land from uh, from Naomi was ultimately from Elimelech, that and he was going to uh, take Ruth as his wife, and of course they have a child, 
And in verse 14, it says, Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative, and may his name be famous in Israel. And may he be to you a restorer of life and nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. And the neighbor women gave him a name, saying, There's a son born to Naomi. And they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. So this terrible situation, of course, Naomi, not that long ago, she's thinking, well, you know, you know, I'm done. You know, my, my husband is dead. My sons are dead. And, uh, you know, there's just not a, a whole lot left for me in this world. And uh, we see, see here God making good out of it, that Ruth that with Ruth, uh, she marries Boaz. They have a son. And we see in verse uh, uh, 17, it says, There is a son born to Naomi. So this uh, the family of Naomi and Elimelech, they're going to be able, that, that, that family is going to be able to continue on. And we see where this son, his name is Obed, and he is the father of Jesse, the father of David. So we see the lineage of David continuing on. And ultimately, we see that that the lineage of David being the lineage of Christ. And I already said this, but God accomplishes will using the free will of many individuals, that they are just making these choices, and uh, we see God uh, working things out. And I think that we have to recognize that we cannot think that he's still not doing those same things today. That God is still accomplishing his will. Even while we have all these individuals making these choices, that God is still able to uh, work those things out, and I think that's a you know a, an indication of God's power. That even in the midst of all of these people making these choices, God can still make His or still get His will done. That He doesn't have to be directly manipulating every individual in order to accomplish His uh, His will. It's kind of hard to think about, but we see this is what's going on. And of course, we see we see uh, Judah and Tamar, we see Rahab the harlot. And now we see Ruth, a Moabite, the lineage of David, and also the lineage of Christ. And we see these people who, would, you know, you would think that would have no part in the lineage of Christ, that these is, this is who they are. And we see it's because, at least with Ruth and Rahab, it's because of their faith in God, regardless of, of their past life and where they may have come from, their faith and them making these good godly choices allows them to become that lineage of Christ a part of the lineage of Christ. Now, uh, that's the end of my lesson. I hope it's been useful for y'all. For y'all. I just, again, just kind of looked at these high points of Ruth, and I think it's at least interesting points for me, and I think there's a whole lot more we could talk about in this book. But, uh, you know, of course, we didn't talk a lot about how to be saved or, you know, uh, you know how to, you know, live a good Christian life, but we did see applications of that, uh, in Ruth's life, we see several scriptures that tie into that and, uh, you know, recognize, like we see in Colossians chapter 1, that we can have redemption through Christ's blood, uh, forgiveness of sins, uh, just as Boaz redeemed uh, this land, that uh, Christ can redeem you uh, from your sins. And so we ask if anyone here is not a Christian and would want to become one, certainly like to talk with you about it and do whatever we can to get that done, and also for us who are Christians, that uh, we may have uh, fallen away, we have we may have turned back, like we see in Hebrews chapter chapter ten, uh, that uh, we need to turn back to God if we are in that uh, particular situation, 
And, uh, you know, if, if, if you need the help of the saint for that, you need to confess anything, we'd certainly like to uh, do that for you as we stand, as we sing, will you come? I'd like to stay here long.